Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today is the fifth episode of our Villains series, and we will be talking about Enterprise. Enterprise! It's been a long road. (laughs) It really has been a long road, but actually, you know, we are taking the short road this week, and we're actually recording not two weeks after the last podcast was made. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for, once again, hanging in. Our lives are a little crazy right now. But they're just, you know, moving right along. I actually have my cat son named Archie here with me today, and he kind of likes to yell and meow a lot. So if you hear him in the pod, there might not be times where we can cut him out because he's very noisy, and he also needs the window open because he's kind of high maintenance. So I appreciate you all just dealing with the background noise. Yeah, and I think... Every single week we've been saying thanks for hanging in with us, but (laughs) we really mean it. This summer has been hectic and, you know, we still want to record this podcast come rain or shine. And I think it's more important that we have these discussions. And if there's like a cat yelling his agreements in the background, I think it'll still be overall a good pod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ashlyn, you know, I tend to agree with that. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about our process of choosing these Enterprise episodes and just how we decided what were the baddest villains in Enterprise. Yeah, so Enterprise is very unique, as have been all the series that we've discussed so far. And the baddies that stuck out to us when we were first thinking about Enterprise, of course, was Shran because of Jeffrey Combs and how amazing he is. We love talking about him in Deep Space Nine, so of course we have to talk about him here in Enterprise. Also, just thinking about the finale of Enterprise, there's a horrible white supremacist plot that we have to talk about. So, (sighs) you know, we gotta talk about Paxton even though we don't want to. And then there's the old favorites that we've talked about in previous villain podcasts, like the Borg actually make a comeback in Enterprise. Section 31 actually makes a comeback, albeit a tiny one. Yeah. in Enterprise. The Augments and Dr. Soon are also a returning theme in Enterprise. And then, of course, we have two new villains that we're going to be talking about, and that is the Suliban, including Silic, and the Zindi. So Ooh. I think it's a good balance that the writers of Enterprise decided to obviously introduce some new villains, but it's fun that because Enterprise is a prequel show to the original series and to the rest of Star Trek, that we get the origin of a lot of these other villains, or in some cases, their weird time travel counterparts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> So the episodes that we're going to be covering in this podcast, I'm just going to read them in the order of what we will talk about. I thought that last podcast being organized was a good thing, so I'm going to continue that trend. Yeah. (laughs) If that's okay with you, Rihanna. (laughs) You know, that's really great, Ashley. So we're going to start with the Suliban in the episodes Cold Front and Shockwave Part 2. 
Then we're going to go on to Dr. Soon and the Augments. Spoilers, Dr. Soon does make an appearance. And we're going to talk about them in Borderlands, Cold Station, and the Augments. Then we're going to move on to the Borg and talk about them in Regeneration. And then Paxton in Terra Prime. The Zindi in The Expanse and The Forgotten. And we are going to wrap up this baby with the one and only Shran and the Andorians in The Andorian Incident, Proving Ground, Babel One, and United. Oh, Ashlyn, I'm so excited to talk about Shran. But before we do that, I have to ask you a very important question. Ashlyn, what Enterprise villain would you run away with if you could run away with an Enterprise villain? Okay, I think I'm going to steal your answer, because to me, there's only one clear answer, and that is Shran. (laughs) (laughs) I am running away with that blue skin, and maybe I'm going to have some surgery and become an Andorian. (laughs) Because I actually really like his antenna, and I know that Star Trek Las Vegas is going on right now, the like ginormous Star Trek Comic Con, and they're celebrating their 55th anniversary of Star Trek, so I'm very jealous of everyone who's there right now. And I have been seeing so many Andorians in pictures, and so it really makes me want to cosplay as an Andorian next time. And so this just fits right in with my desire. I'm going to run away with Shran, I'm going to become an Andorian, and we're going to just hang out together. That sounds great, Ashlyn. I think that's an excellent choice. Yeah, thank you. So, Rihanna, who are you going to run away with? Well, I want to run away with Shran, too, but it sounds like he's taken. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think maybe maybe I'll run away with Degra. You know, oh. he's, he's, uh, he's kind of annoying, but, like, he's not terrible. He has a lot of remorse, and he works with Archer, and he's not, like, you know, an insectoid. I don't think I could deal with that, running away with something that's, like, clicking and spitting. <laughs> but yeah. I think I could I could manage running away with Degra because he's like nice and I know that his future is really bright and so I know that he starts cool alliances and him and Archer are sort of fated to be these partners and I think that that's really cool and so I'd be like bro it sucks that you helped destroy part of Earth <laughs> <laughs> but I think that he's cool I guess I don't know it's hard to choose Enterprise villains who are not Shran, (laughs) so, (laughs) but yes, my number one choice is definitely Shran, because he's hilarious and amazing. Yeah, I don't disagree with you about Degra, he's definitely a Zindi that I can get behind. Yeah, (laughs) about one of the only ones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And his little monkey friend, but I forgot his name, so. Yeah, the primates, we're gonna really dive into the Zindi, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. in like an hour. (laughs) You want to talk about our friend Silic? Yeah, I guess I do. So we meet the the kind of opening villains of Enterprise are the Suliban. And we even see them in the first episode of Enterprise. They are taking orders from Future Man, which is a ghostly figure <laughs> who is kind of Emperor-esque, where it's a shadowy figure giving instructions to the Suliban. We learn throughout these episodes that this is all because of a temporal cold war that's going on. So this is when it gets really complicated. And for all of the specific time travel related things, we covered the heck out of this in our time travel series. So if you want a refresher, please go back and listen to that podcast. I think it's called Future Man. So yeah, (laughs) but anyway, so... 
The Suliban and Silic specifically are really benefiting from their relationship with future men and these beings from the future because they are getting special body improvements once they complete a mission. So the future man's like, Silic, go get me Archer. And then if he can, then he's gonna have like better eyesight when he comes back. Yeah. Basically they get Botox <laughs> when they complete a mission. So they are all really motivated to help out Future Man. Yeah, Ashlyn, this is interesting that they sort of get incentives in order to complete missions and it's a good way to control people. It's a good way to ensure that you have loyal subjects when you're giving them gifts of enhancements and stuff, but it also, helps future man have stronger soldiers every time. And so it sort of mutually benefits them. And so I can see why Silic is so devoted to this guy, because it's like, hey, he's giving me good body parts. Yeah, and Suliban naturally, so like in Archer's time, do not have the ability to turn into a chameleon, right? Like yeah. all of this is because they've been benefiting from the future men. Yeah, I believe so, so. Yeah, so they have that ability. They can like blend into their surroundings and turn invisible. And then can't they shapeshift though? I thought Archer was like, don't shapeshift on me. He can like, Mr. Fantastic, like squeeze himself into places. Kind of reminds me of Tombs from the X-Files as well. Mm. Like he's a rubber band. Ah, okay. Got you. Like <laughs> so, an octopus. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, so, I mean, these are really cool tips and tricks for his body. <laughs> and it makes him hard to kill mm -hmm. also. And so the first time that we see Silic interacting with Archer in Broken Bow, and that's kind of like the introduction. And then in Cold Front, that is where we learn about the Temporal Cold War because Daniels is on board and... Silic also joins the crew of the Enterprise because he's trying to capture Daniels and he's trying to prevent him from accomplishing his mission. You know, maybe he can shapeshift because he was that weird guy on the transport ship going to look at the nebula with everyone. Yeah, I thought he can shapeshift. It's kind of weird because I feel like they never lay out all the Sulaban enhancements or like capabilities and that sort of makes them a unknown threat in some ways because you're just learning along the way oh my god they're crawling on the ceiling like spiders and they're disappearing and reappearing and all this stuff and they can slip through conduits and stuff so yeah i think that purposefully the writers are making their powers a little vague so you're like whoa what are the Zulaban gonna do next never know what crazy stuff they've got up their sleeves yeah, and I think this is also to our benefit as watchers because as hardcore Star Trek fans, we've never heard of the Suliban. And so it's kind of fun to try to figure out, oh, what's his powers in this episode? Yeah. And yeah. I honestly think the Suliban was one of the most successful of Enterprise's original villains because even though they're not super powerful or threatening, their capabilities are so interesting and the whole deal with the future man is just fascinating to me and so i think that it adds a really fun element to the temporal cold war like we talked about in time travel and all of this stuff so while the zindi are definitely way more threatening i feel like i appreciate the writing of the sulaban more if that makes sense 
See, I disagree. I think that the Suluban are very threatening. Mm. And I feel very stressed when I know they're going to be in an episode because of the unknown, mm. like we just talked about. And especially because they're getting their instructions from people in the future who are trying to influence a much larger scope than just what's happening on the Enterprise. It really is scary to me, and I never know what they're going to do. And Silic, I think, is very unpredictable. Obviously, his goal is basically to do the best job he can so he gets these augments. But along the way, he really gets a rivalry with Archer. And I think that really comes to a head in the episode Shockwave Part 2 because their relationship has been building throughout all these episodes and they keep randomly running into each other and Silic is doing weird things like in Cold Front when he's trying to quote-unquote save Enterprise from exploding. He is actually saving Enterprise from exploding because Enterprise has a bigger role to play. Oh, in the that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So he's not just trying to help Archer. It's because of this higher agenda mm-hmm. that and he has. Of Daniels. Yeah, and because of Daniels. So I like how they build up their relationship into this kind of nasty fight. And I just want to say also that Silic does kill Daniels in Cold Front. I mean, this is the first time we meet Daniels and we see him die. He ends up coming back and he's fine. Yeah. But it was kind of shocking to see that Silic succeeded in his mission and he did kill Daniels. It kind of reminded me of the surprise I had in Deep Space Nine when Yoon 4 was killed. The first episode we met him, like we talked about in our Deep Space Nine episode, it was just so shocking that you would introduce someone so big, seemingly, and then just kill them off right away. And then, of course, Wayun comes back, and so does Daniel. So we see that they have powers that we don't even realize, and Daniels is a very powerful time traveler and everything. But yeah, it does show how threatening he is. I really am glad that you brought that up. And I also want to say, too, that Silic has such an interesting relationship with Future Man, and this really comes out in Shockwave, where he is pretty much lost without Future Man. And I think that this is why I'm not as threatened by the Sulaban, is because once they're out of contact, and once the timeline is all wrecked because Daniels brought Archer to the future, Silic just falls apart. <laughs> like He is a mess without Future Man. He has no idea what to do, and so he's just searching the ship and torturing Enterprise crew members to try to get information and he's very easily manipulated. So I feel like the whole structure of the Sulaban and the command system and everything completely relies on Future Man. And yes, they're competent without him. Like it was easy for them to take over Enterprise because they had their weapons targeted at their warp core. Archer wasn't there. So Archer couldn't pull out some sort of crazy half-baked solution or whatever. But so like they are threatening because they took over Enterprise and that is like, that's scary. But it's also just sort of funny in a way to see him like please sir answer me you know he's so desperate and you know that of course like archer comes in and he's like you son of a beep you know <laughs> he's just he's so mad and like it just punches silic and that's archer's favorite pastime is punching villains in the face <laughs> Yeah. See, Rihanna, we're having very opposite reactions because I really thought that once Silic lost contact with Future Man, yeah, it was kind of pitiful to see him like, sir, where are you? (laughs) But I thought it made him all the more desperate and Mm. fierce because... I don't think he would have tortured T'Pol otherwise, you know? And he beats the you-know-what out of Reed. Yeah. Reed looks awful yeah. once he's been punching him in the chair. 
I think that Silic just gets more reckless mm. and more dangerous once he loses contact because he's at that point willing to do anything to fix this situation. I was kind of worried for the Enterprise crew because they were really in a tough position. Luckily, Archer was able to communicate with them in the past. And I do think that is one of my favorite Archer moments is in the climax of Shockwave when you think that Future Man is actually coming back. And Silic is like, thank God, man, where have you been? What can I do? And then Archer is the one who comes through... Archer is the one who comes through and he kicks him in the face. And Brianna, you said son of a bee. I think I'm gonna say it because Archer says it. Silic is like, what did you say, sir? And Archer comes through and kicks him and says, I said you're an ugly bastard. Oh, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that is so funny. And so Archer, like he literally comes into the past kicking, <laughs> ready to fight. And it is such a good moment and such a triumph for them. You know, I think that Silic relies too much on Future Man, and I think you're right, seeing him unhinged is, is a little stressful and threatening. I know we're not talking about these episodes, but I do want to briefly, like, shout out to Silic because he does end up collaborating and helping Archer before his death, and it's pretty admirable the way he goes out. I'm pretty sure it's in, we talked about it in our time travel series, so we won't get too far into it, but he like dies for them, you know? And so it's interesting because I find that a lot of these Enterprise villains end up teaming up with Archer and a lot of it's due to these bigger plots and these bigger issues. And I was actually talking to my friend Eli this week because we watch a lot of anime together and he was talking about how the archetype of villains like the best way to do a villain is to start with a small villain who's like a bully or just a jerk or just awful someone like Silic, who you're just like ugh, here he is again archer's annoyed we're annoyed we're like what's gonna happen today and then you introduce a bigger villain who is way worse has a higher agenda has something more dangerous up their sleeve and suddenly the smaller jerk villain seems like barely a threat and sometimes a friend you know and so then you build something bigger and you're like wait then the bigger man wasn't even the biggest threat you know and so if you have these plots building on each other and if you have these dangerous elements continuing to get more dangerous then that's the best way to do a villain because you're showing how multifaceted they can be and how a lot of it does rely on chains of command and rely on these bigger plots. And I feel like that is where the Sulaban arc is so successful and why Silic is a very successful villain because even though he's annoying and stuff, once we start to team up with him and realize, wow, like this is truly about saving the future. Like this is about ensuring a good future for as many beings as they can then it really shifts the way that we think about Silic. And I don't know, I think it's just an important thing to remember, especially going into these other villains we're gonna talk about. Brianna, thank you. So number one, I love your point, and I was thinking it as well while we were watching these episodes. And number two, I can't believe you threw in Chain of Command in there just to make a Star Trek 
is, is that a pun? I, I don't know, but <laughs> a Star Trek reference while you were talking about villains, that was, mm, wow. Uh, Gordon Ramsay would call that a perfect 10 chef's dish. <laughs> Thank you, I'm honored. Yes, this is exactly what I was thinking. Deep Space Nine has a little bit of this where we have villains turning to friends later, mm-hmm. but I think it's especially important in Enterprise to be already showcasing this because it's so early in the timeline of the Federation. Like, there's no Federation. And it's showing that in order to have peace in our quadrant, we do have to get through these disputes with all of our neighbors as Earth. And if we don't do that, then we're never going to be able to create something higher than ourselves. And so I love seeing that on this small level. You took away my point because I was going to make this exact point in like four villains from now. So, (laughs) but let's just call it the start of a running theme throughout the podcast. Absolutely, because we're going to see it over and over again. And I'm really excited to unpack that. Um, I just want to throw out while we're on the villain arc discussion, this is a spoiler for Dragon Ball Z fans, but one of my very favorite villains of all time turned to my favorite character is Vegeta because he starts off as one of the most formidable, terrible characters and he ends up being so amazing to the point where you're weeping at the end of the series because of the turn that he's done. So again, like shout out to anime. There's nothing as satisfying as a villain who has an arc like that. I mean, Maybe a villain who only gets more and more evil, like Goldicott, is also satisfying. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's fun to see them turn. Absolutely. And if it's written well, you know, I think that's the caveat. I'll yes. Say. Because yes. I've seen half done, half baked villains that they try to turn good. And I, I can't really think of a good example right now, Ashlyn, if you can think of any. But I'm just thinking, like, I'm glad that we have good writers on Star Trek, even though I know people are controversial about Enterprise. I think that one of the things that Enterprise succeeds in so well is the fact that even if their villains aren't expertly written, they're not maybe Deep Space Nine caliber, they're still excellent in their character development. And in the longer running arcs, you really see that. So maybe if you don't see it in an episode, you see it in the entirety of the series later on. Yes, I totally agree. Well, and I'm just thinking of like, you know, to go a little bit out of the Star Trek path, I'm thinking about someone like Darth Vader in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he ends up turning in the last like minute of his life. (laughs) (laughs) But that's still satisfying because of the way that it's all been building the whole time. And so I totally agree. It's all about delivery. Yeah. Yeah, well, well... You know who never turns good? <laughs> <laughs> you know who gets gradually worse and worse? Is <laughs> the Augments. That's who I'm talking about. We both had transitions for this next one, Rihanna. Okay. I was going to say, you know who's someone who really rides the line between good and evil? And that is Dr. Soon. <laughs> well, hey, we did... Yeah, we're going to talk about both of these right now. Dr. Soon and the Augments. And how uh, good or bad they are. <laughs> I was so surprisingly thrilled to watch the episode Borderlands because this is a three for one villain episode because we didn't talk about them in the beginning, but we actually get to see the Orion Syndicate in this episode. And so I'm just going to start out and say the Orion Syndicate, we've talked about them in Deep Space Nine, and this is basically not their origin story. We don't get to see how the Orion Syndicate was created in this episode, but we do get to see that it is a thriving enterprise. 
It's something that starts way before the Federation does and will last way longer than the Federation does, as we oh, see yeah. a, a little later. And that is something that kind of makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, it makes you sad that a, a slave-run system lasts longer than a united, peaceful Federation? Yeah, understandably. <laughs> yeah, and also just that their organization is so much better than the Federation that they can last for so long. Like, we're talking about a organization that can last about a thousand years, right? Yeah. I mean, that's similar to, like, the length of some of these dynasties that happen in China. Like, it's... Oh, man. That's a long time. That's really long, guys. That's that's too long, honestly. Rihanna, will you talk about how we meet Dr. Soon and why we even see Orion Slave Girls in this episode? Yeah, so Dr. Soon is really channeling his mad scientist vibes. He has got his prison cell filled with scientific notes about augmentations and genetic manipulation and he is really just wild he's a wild man and essentially dr soon is taken out of prison because they hear that some augments have taken over a klingon bird of prey sound familiar um it's because it is Turns out that Dr. Soon used to work at Cold Station 12, which is a Starfleet station that holds a lot of medical scientific discoveries and viruses. So it's it's got a lot in there. And part of what Cold Station 12 has are these embryos of genetically enhanced babies, essentially. I think that the genome is still able to be manipulated. Can we... I don't know for sure, Ash. Are the embryos already genetically enhanced, or did Dr. Soon enhance them when he stole them? Because he stole 19 embryos from Cold Station 12. Um, so he enhanced them after he stole them. Okay, so... So they're just, like, raw, genetically enhanced from the Third World War embryos. And then once he gets a hold of them, he's like, hey, let's make them even better. Yeah, and his definition of even better is similar to how the augments on Earth during World War III thought of genetic enhancements, meaning that they're stronger, more intelligent, faster, and a little bit more homicidal, I'd say. (laughs) In this case, a lot more for some of the characters. Uh, But turns out that Brent Spiner, I mean Dr. Soon, really raised all of these embryos from baby form until they were young adults and until he was arrested, essentially. We get a little flashback of him teaching his children things about the world and it's terrible because he's teaching them about the world, saying that they are better than humanity and really just inflating their egos a lot as well as teaching them about science and math and all of this stuff, but Ashlyn, because I was watching this with my girlfriend and she was like, why? Why is he doing this? And I have a couple of ideas. I think that part of it is because he's got the mad scientist aesthetic going on. He wants to see if he can do it, essentially. And he also thinks that World War Three, the eugenics war, had kind of the right idea that humans can be better. And he even asked a poll at one point, don't you think that humanity, quote, needs improvement? 
And Topol argues that all species need improvement and that like that's why we grow and change. But he means improving right now through embryos. Let's just change them at their very genetic structure. And of course, this is punishable by imprisonment on Earth because of the eugenics wars and all of this. So yeah, I don't know. I think his motivations are purely scientific, but I also wonder if he was trying to build a small army that could protect him and help him build this new era of humans. I don't know, Ashley, what do you think his intentions are with stealing these embryos and enhancing them? I had not thought about the army before you said that. So let me digest it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But my initial inclination is a couple of things. And most of it is his ego. We're going to see, and we already have talked about multiple iterations of Soong's, and so that's why it's fun to see him in a prize, because we know in 200 years, his ancestor is going to create data and lore, and then even further, we're going to talk about some Soong's. So it's interesting to see the man who made these augments, because yes, he does have a mad scientist gene, and his ego is huge, and when he was working on Cold Station 12 with all of the embryos there, he talks about in this whole three-episode arc that at one point he says that he was staring at the embryos, and he just wanted to reach out and touch them, and use them, and help raise them, and that's exactly why he ended up stealing them. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is because he wanted to see if he could do it. And then also, I feel like he is someone who has a lot of opinions about the past and the eugenics wars that are different from the conclusion that Starfleet made and that history has made that don't mess with genes. And he thinks that if he can do it the right way and help humanity, he will prove everybody else wrong and they will come to see his side but what's interesting about this is that, yes, he makes some adjustments to the embryos, but he does not think about their personalities. And he only adds qualities that he thinks are important or relevant to the human race. But being such an egomaniac, he doesn't think that maybe they should be more empathetic or respect others. And he doesn't even raise them that way. He is so proud of what he grew, basically, that that's how he raises them. And also, just as a side note, I would love to see like a short trek about how he freaking took care of 19 babies at the same time because that seems impossible like they're screaming maybe he had something in their genome where like they didn't need milk but like how how did he raise these children alone on this planet i have yeah. no idea and he's like a fugitive too so he can't reach out to people he can't go to the store and get some milk. I don't know what's on this planet, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think mother's milk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he was intending on building an army, but I don't think he would have been opposed to it if they had decided to violently take over another planet. I don't think he would have been opposed to that if that's how it had turned out. I think that soon from the past wouldn't have been opposed to that, but we see in this arc that he is very opposed to the violent nature 
that his children have grown into. And I gotta say, how did he not predict this? First of all, read a book. I just think he's the type of person who doesn't learn from history. Mm -hmm. Like he thinks because he wasn't there, he couldn't see the atrocities of everything that happened in World War III. And so he thinks if I had been there, I'm a genius, I would have solved everything. Yeah, and I think yeah. he kind of wants to try it out to see if he can recreate it in a way that does not turn out like the eugenics wars. And he didn't put into account that if you're going to tell 19 babies how powerful and strong they are, and then they learn that through like just discovering their own bodies and discovering how much more powerful they are, that once they are off this planet, they're gonna utilize that power and they're gonna think that they're better than everyone. Literally one of the augments, I think his name is Malik, he chose a quote from Nietzsche, which is mankind is something to be surpassed. Which is, that's not what Nietzsche meant, first of all. <laughs> um, I'm not a huge fan of no. Nietzsche's, but that's not well, what he meant. Topol even calls him out on that. She's like, do you think he was talking about you? Yeah. <laughs> He's very short-sighted, soon is, and yeah, I think you're right. He thinks that this is something that he thinks he can do better than Khan did. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing up Khan, because I was just going to say that none of these augments read the books that their predecessors left for them, because yeah. Brent, uh, Brent Spiner, I'm just going to call him <laughs> Brent Spiner, <laughs> Um, he left all these books for the Augments to read, and they clearly didn't read them. Mm -hmm. And then Khan clearly never finished Moby Dick. It's not required reading anymore in the 90s. Actually, uh, yeah, I, probably is it, it, it was. I could <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Khan and these Augments, they all think that they're better than what's come before them. And that's a huge trap for them to fall in, and this is their downfall, is that much like soon, they think that history doesn't matter because I'm better than it. Yeah, exactly. They are more willing to go further to advance their goals of both escaping and living their lives. They know that Starfleet is going to continue to come after them. They know that they're tenacious. They know that if Archer can yeet himself into space and get beamed up, he's willing to go after them to the ends of the earth and the augments are aware of this so after they go to cold station 12 and torture flox's friend and flox's friends friends it's awful they've got a lot of hostages they kill one of them they almost kill flox's pen pal it's rough anyway so there's this whole scene where dr soon is trying to keep control of them. He's trying to keep them on a tight leash, but the tighter leash he tugs, the more that Malik, especially the leader, wants to pull away. And we learn that Malik has killed one of his brothers already. He's sleeping with one of his pseudo sisters. It's just a whole mess. And there's a lot of infighting going on where, you know, it's sort of Klingon-esque in the way that it's about the strongest person in the room, essentially, who gets the power and who gets to lead. Rihanna, you keep taking what I'm gonna say. <laughs> it's because of the one brain cell we share. <laughs> I know, it's really just thinking about one thing. So I was just going to say that so much of this is taken from Space Seed and Wrath of Khan because everyone that they wake up on Botany Bay knows that Khan is leader. Obviously Khan was the greatest leader in World War III, it seems like, and so everyone would naturally obey him. But in this group of augments, they too are like wolves, where it's a wolf pack and there's one leader and they are fighting for dominance. Mm -hmm. And when Soon comes back into the picture, 
in Malik's eyes, he is not the dominant one because he does not respect intelligence. He only respects strength. And Soon is weak. He's just a human compared to how strong Malik is. And so even though Soon is way stronger and more logical than Malik is, he doesn't care about that. He's just about bloodshed. It seems like there's been a lot of infighting brewing. And then another parallel I want to bring up is that much like Khan and his crew when they were stranded on City Alpha 5, um, <laughs> these poor Augment children were stranded on this planet once Soon was arrested and also left to their own devices. And so that just doesn't work well. Yeah. So they're isolationists, basically. They have had no other contact. I feel like they would have maybe turned out differently if they had been integrated in school. Like even yeah. Archer suggests you guys should go to school. <laughs> and there is one augment. I His name is like- Something dumb. I called him the weakling the whole time, which was pretty oh, mean. Oh, Rihanna. <laughs> Yeah. That is mean. It was pretty mean. He's a cool guy. He's I feel just like not his genetically his, enhanced like the others. I feel like his name is something funny like Sticko or yeah. something. I can't remember, but there's one cute one who is not enhanced except for his hearing. He was like a failure embryo. Yeah, and so they left him behind. Yeah, and Archer finds him in the episode Cold Station Twelve. And he's a great guy, it seems like. He was able to survive on the planet alone when all the other augments left him, which still shows that he's strong and adaptable. Yeah. And also, just not in general, not all of the augments are brutal and bloodthirsty. Yeah, I feel like it's mostly Malik because he kills their former leader. He ends up killing his girlfriend. Mm hmm and he tries to kill Soong. <laughs> and using a viral agent in the atmosphere, he plots to destroy an entire Klingon colony so that the war with the Klingons can begin between the Klingons and Starfleet. That's pretty dark. Yep. Yeah, and he only wants to start the war so then Starfleet will be too consumed with fighting the Klingons to try to recover the augments. So he's like, oh, well, while they're fighting, we'll slip away, which is just so chaotic that you're willing to have such a destructive result just because you need to escape. That's so brutal. <laughs> Talk about self-centered. Jeez. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. We totally skipped over the Orion part, so I just want to quickly jump back to Borderlands <laughs> yeah. because... The reason that the Orion Syndicate is even brought up is because the Augments in their Bird of Prey have slipped into a region of space called the Borderlands because it's right between the Klingon Empire and the Orion Syndicate. And it's kind of this dead space where it's extremely dangerous because if you're straggling along, a Bird of Prey can just kill you or the Syndicate can grab you and sell you into slavery, which is high key what happens to T'Pol in this episode and nine other crew members of Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so already we get to see when they're in the prison that they have the devices in their necks, which is a Orion Syndicate staple. Mm -hmm. You gotta control your prisoners, put them into cages, and then it's a total slave market. So the master guy holds up whoever is being sold he gets money for them. It's horrific. It's awful. so awful. And I believe a Tellarite actually bought Topol, which is very disturbing. Yeah. It was sad too because the white man didn't make any money and he got beat up because he oh wasn't worth God. anything. His name's Jeffrey and he just signed on. And then the Poor first Jeffrey. thing that happens to Jeffrey is he gets sold into slavery. That's but so he awful. Gets sold to Archer, so that's good. 
Yeah. <laughs> and he gets he gets untagged and he's fine. Poor Jeffrey, he's freaking out. Like he could not pave the way or put his back into it. Like he is Yeah. Just... Oh my god, nice. That was a great reference. Thank wow. You. That was that was advanced. <laughs> Any Bo Burnham fans out there? Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, so I just wanna just shout out that like the Orion City gets bad and it was sad to see. <laughs> it was really sad to see and it was also really well done. They made it super scary. They made all the Orions really big, tall, scary dudes. They made them all very daunting and just the cages themselves, the environment, like it was just awful. But I'm glad that they were able to free or at least open up the cages and try to free the slaves. So at least they could try to make a run for it, but I don't know where they would go. <sighs> Anyway, yeah. Arthur just sort of left all of them. Yeah. Um, I hope that, like, he sent some ships later. I don't know. This was literally all of Soon's plot in order to try to escape. He's like, well, if I put them in the path of the Orions, then they'll probably get captured. And then that'll distract them enough for me to try to get away. And he almost does, but Archer's able to snatch him at the last minute. And they make their way <laughs> to go collect the rest of the augments. This is, again, why Soon is so similar to his children because on a smaller scale he's doing the exact same thing that Malik is trying to do with the Klingons. He's trying to get a whole crew captured and sold into slavery just so he can escape which yeah. is still horrific results for your actions. Yeah that's pretty messed up. It's um, not causing a war between two intergalactic species but it's still pretty bad. Yeah absolutely. So they actually have a small discussion about Khan, which is really fun. I love the little references they do. Dr. Soon wants the Augments to go around and find the other sleeper ships and start waking up other Augments. And they all are sort of down for that. But the thing they're not down for is trying to run from the Federation, and that's why Malik is trying to kill all these Klingons. But essentially, Malik says that Khan, quote, ran away from his enemies rather than face them. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, that's interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting take because, I mean, he did. Technically, he decided to put himself into cryo-freeze and shoot the Botany Bay into space with the rest of his crew rather than face punishment and trial. And he did run away from any sort of consequences until he meets Kirk. <laughs> so I think that that is fascinating, that take he took of facing the enemies but then he also is planning to run away in a different way with starting the war with the Klingons and all of this so I don't know Malik's motivations are all over the place because they're scrambling you know to try and get out of this situation and try to not be on the run any longer but we learn that Soon wants to grab more embryos and create more babies that now factor in personality and he says I want to correct the defect in its genome saying essentially I want to take out the murdery part <laughs> that you guys have. I want to take out the homicidal tendencies and the aggression and everything. And Malik thinks, oh, you want to turn them docile. Like, you want to just make them your pets, essentially. This is an interesting power shift here because we see him go from, oh, I love you, father. Sorry, I killed one of your children. I'm so remorseful, blah, blah, blah. Even though they're crocodile tears, you know. But then he's truly defying him and tries to put Soon under captivity in his quarters and everything. And so Soon starts to lose the power, but it's only because of Prius, <laughs> Prima, I don't know her name, but the female Augment who is sleeping with Malik, she ends up betraying him and 
letting soon go and everything which is great because that's what ends up getting the rest of the augments captured but also gets them all killed it's crazy none of them make it out of this alive nope okay i have a couple of responses to what you said so i love your point about how malik is talking about khan i thought it was funny that soon said that the botany bay sleeper ship was a myth It's interesting to me just as a general observation that so many things that are true are actually started as myths and Mm -hmm. no one really believes them. It also makes me think about how so many famous dictators on earth do have a bunker that you go to because they know at some point they're probably going to fall or, you know, this might not last forever. So I have a backup plan. And that's exactly what Khan did, too. That's a really good point. Once they start seeing that the tide is shifting, they have to have a backup plan if they want to survive, which none of them did except Khan. So maybe Malik should think about who his heroes are and make them be Khan. Because <laughs> <laughs> also, so you talked about how Soon is frantically trying to alter the DNA of these other embryos that he stole. And I couldn't help but think about lore and data. Because when soon, the next generation, 200 years from now soon, is creating the androids, the first one he created was Lore, who's a horrible person. Yeah, <laughs> very murdery. Yeah, very murdery, very awful, no morals. And he shut him down and created Data, who is a perfect, amazing, lovable friend. No matter which soon it is, they cannot do it right the first time because their tendency is towards strength and intelligence and not towards kindness and compassion. And like just general observation and goal striving, none of the qualities that make a good person is what soon thinks about first. And so I just thought it was interesting that he's making the same mistake that his ancestor is going to make later. Thank you for doing that parallel, Ashlyn. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting too. And I know that con was just so epic. So it's just such a shadow that's looming over this Mm three-parter. And I thought it was really cool to have a callback because when everything is falling apart on the Klingon Bird of Prey. The ship is destroyed, and we just see Malak, and he looks exactly how Khan looks in Wrath of Khan, where he says, barely alive. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't say that line, but I was really expecting him to. He looks like a mess. He's like looking at all of his crew members. Everybody's dead, and he's running around the ship. You think he's dead. He has a fake out where he comes back, and he's like trying to kill. It's exactly like the ending of Wrath of Khan, until, of course, he ends up dying. I thought it was a nice homage, actually, and I feel like sometimes my favorite parts of Enterprise, unfortunately, are when they call back or foreshadow, question mark, to something that's going to happen in later Star Trek series. But I thought that everything that they did with the augments in this three-parter was really nice, and I actually enjoyed it, and I enjoyed getting to know the augments, even if I knew where they were going to be heading. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Another great homage they have is just a little thing they say, I think it's Soon, who says, we don't want to be commanding a garbage scow. And I was literally like, garbage scow is directly taken from Trouble with Tribbles, and I love that. 
Yep, directly taken. <laughs> Fantastic. They really did a great job of incorporating more of the eugenics war in the history because we talk about this all the time, that this is a point in Star Trek history that is often neglected and not discussed or brushed over because Khan is such this big figure that the war itself is more overshadowed by the fact that Khan is just so notorious and nefarious. So I'm really, really glad they did this. It's fantastic. Yes. Now, before we finish talking about our World War III era beings, I just want to make a shout out to Speedy and Rogue on Instagram because they messaged us about our Deep Space Nine villain podcast because we were just wondering why the Jem Hadar are addicted to drugs and maybe it was a reference to something that had happened in Earth's past, but we didn't know. And we like didn't really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, but we did. And we said, please shout out if we have any corrections. And so we do have a correction. I did not know this, but apparently amphetamine was famously used to enhance soldier performance in almost every country in World War II especially the U.S. and Japan. And I am very sad about this. But yeah, so this was heartbreaking and it was a part of history I did not know. But it totally makes sense now that the Earth would be awful. <laughs> so, yeah. Sweetie you, Rogue. Sweetie yeah. and Rogue for telling us about this and informing us because it's important to know this stuff because it's often not discussed, apparently. I mean, I never learned that in any of my history classes. Nope. Nope, me neither. And I just want to continue to encourage if we say something that is off or wrong, please message us and yeah. we will include your correction in the pod. We love learning more. Obviously, we're trying to be as correct as possible because it's fun to inform our audience and give out good information, but we're humans too. Yeah, so. we're not augments. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that was actually really fun. I'm so glad we got to have that discussion. That that was a lovely three for one I area. Agree. Such a good time. So let's go to another villain that we have really thoroughly discussed, and it, it's not over. Let's talk about the Borg. It's not over, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever be over, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> So, Ashlyn, I read a little article, I think it was on Screen Rant, about Star Trek Enterprise's best and worst villains. And they mean best as in they're written well, they're done well, versus worst, they're not written well, not done well. And yeah. unfortunately, the Borg in this section, in the episode Regeneration, was under the category of not done well. And I'm curious what your opinions are on their portrayal of the Borg and on the success of this episode based on other Borg encounters we've seen in past villain episodes. So I don't really like Screen Rant's decision to say that it was a bad portrayal because I think anytime I see the Borg, my blood is frozen and my hands are shaking and I'm like shallow breathing because <laughs> I am very scared of the Borg. <laughs> And that is something that is so successful about them as villains is no matter when I see them, it could be on a bright sunshiny day and they could be walking their dog down the street and I am screaming in terror. <laughs> is the dog also a Borg? Oh yeah, of course. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. I would want to pet it, but I would get like nanoprobes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it'd be a shame. So when this episode starts and we see these scientists digging in the ice and it turns out that they see a Borg. 
oh man, I got very scared. And I also got strong X-Files vibes from yes. this episode because I feel like there's so many X-Files episodes where scientists are on a remote part of Earth doing some cool science stuff and then something terrible arises from the ice <laughs> or from the forest or from this place that they're digging. <laughs> yes, I was wondering actually if this was an homage to the X-Files or because the X-Files had just probably ended around this time i'm not sure when uh but this was in 2004 was this yeah, borg episode and the x-files was made in the 90s and so x-files had probably been fairly done by then but i think you know it's just sort of riding the tail end of the x-files craze i think and so that was definitely i thought a huge motivation for it being in the uh, arctic circle also i've actually this is funny but i've never actually seen the movie the thing but I've played the board game at my uh, <laughs> my my girlfriend's board game meetup that we host, and it seems very similar. They're at a remote, icy tundra facility, and there are aliens in disguise, ready to take over and trying to escape to civilization to take over others, and they can infect people with their blood, and so. I've heard that the movie's brilliant. Go and check it out. I might go check it out. It sounds amazing. The game was really fun. <laughs> so anyway, I think that this is something that is a really fun trope that a lot of movies and shows can do really well if they're successful. And I think adding board to this is fun. Like I thought the beginning of this, of course, is terrible, like scary, but fun. Like I do like that sort of the chilling of the ice added with the bone chillingness of the Borg was a really cool thing and how they brush through the snow and there's just like a Borg face in the ice like that is super interesting to me I was gonna say I know Transformers uses this too oh, I think in the first Transformers Ashley. movie or one of them the <laughs> I'm sorry I I, I I like Transformers <laughs> I'm not trying to judge you. No, but it's not Optimus Prime. It's like the evil one is buried in the ice and you like see his eyes open and you're like, oh no. <laughs> um, anyway, I just think that sci-fi can borrow these tropes from each other and it's always fun and always good. And also just in general, it's really interesting to think about what is buried under all of our ice and what relics from the past is gonna mess us up or help us. Captain and America's buried under the ice. Yeah, exactly, Rihanna. And that would really help us. We could really do for a Captain America arrival right now. <laughs> yeah, we really could. <laughs> yeah, so I think the beginning of this episode is very successful. My biggest complaint with this episode is that a lot of it doesn't adhere to what we know about the Borg. When Phlox gets filled with nanoprobes, when he gets assimilated, it takes him like two days to even start feeling like he's being assimilated. It takes like three seconds to be assimilated by the Borg. This is something that <laughs> makes the Borg so terrifying is the fact that they can assimilate whole worlds within like three hours or less. That is the speed in which they can take over people. That is what's really another element that makes them so villainous and scary. But what? Like, Phlox is just chilling in sickbay, isolating himself. But people are still coming in. He could assimilate anyone at any moment. And he also finds a cure to the nanoprobes <laughs> and doesn't share it with Starfleet? What? So sorry, I get a little bit mad about that kind of stuff because Enterprise is a little bit notorious for 
breaking canon or rewriting canon, shall I say? So I don't know. I'm wondering, maybe they're slow acting Borg. <laughs> like maybe this is a certain, maybe their technology. I don't know. I actually don't have an explanation. So yeah, I was thinking this too. And what makes this even more damning and harder to swallow is of course these Borg are not relics from the Ice Age or anything like that. These Borg fell to Earth in the movie First Contact when Picard went back in time to stop the Borg from taking over Earth and then the Borg, it was a sphere that went back, right? Or was it a cube? It was a sphere, yeah. I think, well, at least they said it was a sphere in Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, 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 they did. I, I'm pretty sure it was a Almost sphere. sphere-like quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when the sphere exploded, obviously some Borg fell into the ice and got covered. So what makes this even worse is that these are 24th century Borg assimilating 22nd century people. So that means that the Borg technology is like 200 years more advanced than if they had encountered the Borg right now in the 22nd century. I mean, Flock should be a drone. <laughs> and so should all of Enterprise, to be frank. Absolutely. But she went in there right after he got assimilated. Yeah. I was like, how you feel, Doc? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I, it just cracks me up because I think that Flock's got the sort of main character protection treatment. You know, all the main characters. Plot here. armor. Yeah, plot yeah. armor. Exactly. <laughs> well, so the only, only thing I could think about is perhaps, and Flox does say this in the episode, maybe the Borg in the 24th century, this is a huge reach, Rihanna, <laughs> so you can slap me, but maybe in the 24th century, the Borg queen and everybody else, none of the Borgs had ever encountered a Denobulan, ever, you and? know? And so they never learned how to assimilate them. And so maybe the Denobulans have a really strong immune system. Because that's what Flock says, is that the nanoprobes are having trouble with my system. And we know that Denobulans, yeah, they have a different system. Well, and we never see a Denobulan in TNG, that's true. Uh, DS9, Voyager. Like, we've never met one before Enterprise. Well, and he says in the Augments episode that Denobulians have been using genetic modifications yes. for two centuries, and none of them got murdery. <laughs> um, so yep. perhaps it is a result of their genetic modifications that Phlox is able to assimilate it slower. The, I don't the, know. The point. thing is, the scientists that initially dug up the Borg and then their rescue team, and then the people on Enterprise that were affected also kind of took a long time. Yeah. Again, I'm going to say maybe because they weren't connected to the hive mind, but they were. They were. Because they were. <laughs> Fox hurt them. Yeah, they, they were the connected. Mind. Yeah. 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 It, doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense. Because they also take at least a day to get fully assimilated. Yeah. And I know when Picard got assimilated, it was immediately, he was like, I am Lakuta's abort. <laughs> like 10 seconds after yeah. he had that yeah. arm attached, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't really have an answer. But I feel like with Phlox, maybe he just has like an amazing body. And he's able to fight off the nanoprobes. Otherwise, like yeah, it makes no sense. The thing that I do like... And that kind of blows my mind about the ending of this episode, though, is because Rihanna, when we talked about our next generation villains and talked about how Q introduced humans to the Borg way too early, mm -hmm. actually, 
we find out in this episode, it didn't even matter because the crew of Enterprise set these events in motion mm -hmm. long before Q even shows up on Enterprise D. So this ship, because there's like a tiny Borg ship that is next to Enterprise and they're like oh. firing on them. Oh, yeah. That was the science ship that the Borg yeah, on the ship took over, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. Enterprise right. destroys them. Mm -hmm. But before that, they, as a hive mind, sent a communique <laughs> to the Borg deep in the Delta Quadrant, they say. And that is what triggers the Borg because now they know the coordinates of Earth and they say, hey, these humans almost destroyed us, so get to it, guys. Yeah. And so that is possibly, probably, what sets the Borg's look onto the Alpha Quadrant. And so what's so amazing about this, as Guinan says, full circle, if the Enterprise D had not gone back in time to stop the Borg, the Borg would have assimilated Earth and it would have all been over. But then also they wouldn't have ever gotten the Borg there in the first place to attract the Borg from the Belta Quadrant to come to Earth. Whoa. So this is now a paradox that will forever happen in Star Trek. And it's just destiny that the Borg and the humans are going to be arch enemies forever, maybe until Picard. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> at least right now. And so that was really kind of awesome to me so yeah they broke some continuity they messed up the borg in this episode but i thought that ending was really cool i agree i think the best parts of the episode were the first parts and the last parts because they set up and sent off the borg in such a stylish fashion that i was just like whoa when flocks was saying that he heard this numeric sequence over and over again and that they were the frequencies to earth you know and they said, well, from the Delta Quadrant, it'll take them about 200 years to get here, which is right around the time of Next Generation. And you know what also scares me about this possibility is that maybe the Borg never would have even left the Delta Quadrant if Probably this had not. happened and maybe they never would have expanded i know as a species that's kind of their thing is to like continue assimilating and they don't have babies by reproduction they yeah. just grab beings and turn them into borgs but i think maybe they never would have reached the alpha quadrant or they might not have have aggressively started going this direction if it wasn't for enterprise and high key enterprise d <laughs> yeah they are colonizers so like maybe but such a good point ashlyn but you know who is a colonizer? Okay, yeah, what's what's this? Uh, give, me, give me this transition. <laughs> you know who is a colonizer? And you know who wants to expand the desire for perfection in humanity? Ah, uh, who? Paxton, you know what? I really want to curse right now, like desperately, uh. because he's the worst. And he's a literal neo-Nazi. And I hate it. I hate it mm -hmm. here. <laughs> so we're talking about the episode Terra Prime. This is the second to last episode. I like to call it the finale because I hate the Enterprise <laughs> I told my girlfriend, I'm like, that's it. That's the show. She's like, we watched the finale. I was like, not really, but we did. <laughs> yeah, um, Rihanna and I, we did briefly, like for 10 seconds, talk about, well, are we going to have to talk about the finale for our villain series? And then we were remembering the finale and we were like, mm, yeah, no. Yeah, I looked up the plot for the finale for about two seconds and almost puked. So... <laughs> <laughs> We want to enjoy ourselves here, and I knew I would not if we talked about the <laughs> finale of Enterprise. So we're talking about the absolutely devastating episode that breaks hearts. Ashlyn Paxton is 
just about as bad as the Borg, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't inspire the same terror when you look at him, mm-hmm. but when you start hearing what he's talking about, yeah, I also want to run away in fear. Okay, so Ashlyn, this is absolutely wild because we talked about Star Trek Into Darkness in our villain episode of the original series, and Peter Weller is back again as another notorious villain. He is playing Paxton this time. Last time he was playing Admiral Marcus, and he does villains well. I have to really shout him out because this guy is scary. And you're right, he doesn't inspire the same fear as the Borg, but the way he talks, the sort of monotone, there's something about him that makes me feel, and maybe of course it's the writing, you know, because he's literally writing about how, like, I'm going to kill all non-humans. He just does a really good job at playing villains, and we see this in Into Darkness, how we talked about how Admiral Marcus is really a bigger villain than Khan, but not, you know, sort of this weird dichotomy that he plays in Into Darkness. Yeah, and Rihanna, you blew my mind, because the whole time I was watching Terra Prime, I was like, who is this guy? I know him from something else, so... Thank you, because you really helped me out there. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even realize until I heard his voice, and I was like, why am I thinking about Khan, like Benedict Cumberbatch right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so during this whole Terra Prime situation, when Paxton gives the aliens a day to get off Earth, all of this stuff, Reed gets in contact with his old Section 31 informant, and turns out that Reed was a part of Section 31 before he joined Starfleet. And this is shocking. I mean, we hear a little bit about the Section 31 involvement in Enterprise. It's definitely a part of the show, but it's very on the DL. Very much like a lot of Star Trek shows, but more so here, we only get glimpses and snippets of them. And here, we see that Malcolm is contacting his Section 31 guy again. He contacted him when Flox was kidnapped, so he comes to him in times of great need when he needs covert information he knows he can't get from Starfleet, but he knows he can get from Section 31. Because they have eyes and ears everywhere, and they have different ways of surveilling people that aren't quite legal. And so he knows he can get more information. And this is obviously a good thing for the situation, but it makes me wonder so much about Reed, and it really adds a depth to his character that I wasn't expecting when coming into the show. I was like, oh, Reed's just the guy who loves weapons, and his family was naval officers. Like, that's pretty much his character traits, and that he loves pineapple cake or whatever. (laughs) But I think that, like, it's a really cool addition, something that makes him a lot more mysterious and adds a lot of intrigue to him and to this guy who is his informant he is sort of your typical guy in a trench coat in a back alley under one spotlight being like hello i'm here very deep throat from the x-files uh very i'll appear when you need me and give you some cool information and then slink off into the night (laughs) kind of person yes yes and because we never truly get an origin story of Section 31, it does make me think that perhaps the world government at the time on Earth already had Section 31 existing and functioning independently. You know, like all governments have a shadow agency Mm -hmm. that does the hard things that are more covert. And so it makes me think that along with whatever world government was happening, maybe even preceding Starfleet, 
that Section 31 was operating maybe under a different name, but Section 31 does indeed stay and begin to take orders from Starfleet and not take orders from Starfleet. And then when the Federation is created, they're just going to keep on going along with the future. So I thought it was interesting to know that Section 31 is not necessarily a Federation thing. Mm -hmm. It existed long before. Yeah, I think it birthed the same time that Starfleet did because I think that the higher-ups realized the need for a government black ops organization like this. It's really interesting to watch because Harris is Malcolm's contact. It's cool because at the end of this interaction with them in Terra Prime, he says, you've changed so much, like looks like the student has become the teacher. And Malcolm's like, I hope this is the last time I see you. And he's like, well, you can always come back to us. You know, he's like, you were a great agent, so please come back anytime. And Malcolm's like, I'm done with that life. (laughs) (laughs) This is just a fun, exciting glimpse we get into Section 31 again. And I'm really glad that they brought them up in Enterprise because we have to see that they've been here since the beginning as well as Starfleet has. Yeah, I agree. It's super cool. Yeah, so... This is a disturbing episode for me. You know, we talked about in the Deep Space Nine podcast that seeing the bombing at the school on Deep Space Nine was really disturbing because of recent events. Rewatching Terra Prime now as an adult, and especially after, oh God, the last five years, I feel deeply disturbed watching this episode because... And I'm about to get political, so just get ready. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to be very open-minded on this podcast, but like, I, yeah, I have to speak my truth. Mm-hmm. So the brilliance of this episode is that right when Starfleet is about to create the most important, impactful, peaceful solution in the quadrant to unite Vulcans and Dorians. Tellarites. The gang's all here. Yeah, and they all want to become part of something bigger than themselves to have peace in the galaxy. And when you watch original series, TNG, DS9, all of it, you think humans are perfect. This is great. We are at a point in our lives where humans are perfect. And I love this. But this is not the case. And in Terra Prime, we see that racism once again rears its ugly head right when we're at the precipice of something so great. And so with the rise of Paxton and his supporters, this is a real parallel to life that I have been unfortunately seeing. And that is, especially in the, in the last five years, the closer that we come to try to make permanent changes like equality for all, basic rights for all people, mm-hmm. no matter your gender, race, what you look like, who you love, all people should have the same rights. Mm -hmm. And Paxton and current people, politicians today, think that no, if you're white, you're right. And white supremacy is the way. And unfortunately, the United States and so much of the world has deeply integrated racism and racist policies built into our higher systems because we do not want people who are different than us to succeed. And this is a long-standing tradition, especially in the United States, and it is horrifying. And having to unpack it and rebuild ourselves is very hard, and there is so much resistance to it. 
And so this is a struggle that is not over. Racism is not over. It's 2021. Racism will not be over until we all make a commitment to wake up every day and not be racist. You can't just say, oh, I like black people, so I'm not racist. That's not how it works. It's about changing things at a much higher level and advocating for those changes. When you live in your own bubble and you see your own news cycle and you only read the same news site every day, you don't get the same kind of information that the other side might be getting. And so we are deeply divided. And what Paxson really brings out in this episode for me is that he says humans only. He doesn't say white supremacy, but that's what I'm calling him as a white supremacist. He's a neo-Nazi. He says humans only. Sure, we've cured racism on Earth, but we don't want any aliens messing with our genetics and so what he does in this episode is he takes genes from to pull and trip and he creates the cutest baby i've ever seen mm-hmm. <laughs> who's a mix of half vulcan half human just like our favorite character of all time in star trek spock yeah and he calls the baby disgusting vile a horrible half breed and he is so afraid of mixing genes that he is willing to kill everyone who's different from him. And it is just really awful to see because it reminds me, I I think in when I was younger, I really thought that we were much closer to equality than we were in the 60s and that, oh, things are pretty much fixed now and we're all good. But then with the 2016 election and then again, the 2020 election, seeing the amount of people that voted to basically maintain the status quo and to not fight for change and equality. It was deeply disturbing to me to see in 2017 Nazis march in the street of Virginia. So this episode also reminds us that even if we are literally weeks away from creating a fantastic peacekeeping armada, there are still going to be people that are fighting for their lives to keep the status quo and they will do anything not to change. Sorry, I just had to rant. (laughs) Do not be sorry. That was really well said. And something that is so brilliant about Gene Roddenberry's vision about Star Trek is that it's often future looking. It's often predicting what our future is going to look like if we don't make these changes. And I mean, obviously, during even the early 2000s, of course, Enterprise is deeply talking a lot about 9-11 and the events that happened at the World Trade Center. But I also think that they're reaching these different levels of discussions that a lot of other shows are not willing to make. And I think that this is something that we have to remember about Star Trek and something that I love so dearly about it is that it will make you face the hard topics of life in a way that feels like you're still watching an enjoyable show. You know, it does this so well. I just really want to applaud Enterprise and the writers for taking this step and for talking about this because, I mean, so many people connect through Star Trek. So many people, I met so many of my good friends in my Star Trek meetup group because we all love the show and we all care about its meaning and what it can do for our lives and how it can enrich us. And I think that fiction is such a good platform to discuss issues like this and to put it into this fictional character like Paxton 
is important because it does show the wider problems in America and in the world. And I think it's really telling. Like you said, Ashlyn, it did remind me a lot of 2016 election in the U.S., when the Vulcan ambassador turns to one of the Starfleet admirals and says the fact that Paxton has so much support and that people are already protesting outside of the Andorian embassy and the Vulcan embassy and there are riots in the streets mean that this is a higher issue that the Vulcan ambassador is frankly appalled by, understandably, saying this is not one man, one fanatic trying to tear down a system. This is a deeper issue that stems from a lot more support than there should be for this. And so, yeah, this is what makes this episode and what makes Paxton such a formidable opponent. It just makes me so furious because like... I know, I'm like shaking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just the same stuff over and over again. It's the inability to accept other people of different cultures and backgrounds and identities and races. And I think that the fact that Paxton says that he will give safe passage to all aliens leaving Earth for one day before he starts murdering people, you know, that's sort of his, I'll give you this grace. As long as you get out of here and go back to where you came from, we'll be fine and I won't kill anyone. But the thing too that also makes him dangerous is he's willing to sacrifice human lives in order to do so. It's dangerous regardless because he's trying to kill beings, but he also says that, oh, Trip, if you don't fix this array to make it more precise, I'll blow up half of San Francisco when I destroy Starfleet headquarters. The show of violence that is farther reaching than just his xenophobic feelings. You know, he's willing to destroy half of a city, which is heavily populated. We both lived in San Francisco. We know how packed it is in there. It just shows how reckless and dangerous he is and how committed to this white supremacist goal he is. It's, It's horrifying that he literally created a baby as a symbol of fear and of disgust. That's horrible, because you're right. Elizabeth is like the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. She doesn't even cry this episode, so we don't even have to deal with like a crying baby. She's just vibing. She's just like, hi, I'm really cute. Even when she has a fever, she's like not crying, and she's just the cutest thing ever. And who makes a baby out to be this horrible thing? Like, that's just awful. You suck if if that's your your goal in life. (laughs) Rihanna, you brought up a good point about how the Vulcan ambassador is very confused and angry that Paxson has so much support. And I thought a scene that really hit home for me was when Archer discovers that there is someone on his crew who is a Paxton sympathizer. Mm-hmm. And this further reminds me that there are racist people all around us and they are waiting for an opportunity to rear their heads. Yeah, the fact that someone could be in Starfleet and still believe that aliens are the enemy is just deeply disappointing. And when I saw the Vulcan ambassador, I'm just deeply embarrassed for this version of Earth that is being portrayed that has racist people trying to get all the Andorians out and trying to participate in this literal ethic cleansing that's going on. And I wish I could say that I was surprised, but after seeing the events of everything happening, after watching the Capitol be attacked in January, I am no longer surprised that 
there are people all around us who are so afraid of change that they are willing to hurt other people to prevent it from happening. And so it's just so hurtful to see that there's someone on the crew of the Enterprise, which is supposed to be such a historic ship that has these prejudices, and he ends up taking his own life when everything is turning. And again, Paxton sees the end of his reign is near to all of his supporters begin to fold. I was just so deeply embarrassed in this episode, and it just reminds me to work harder in my own life to talk to people and to try to understand why do you feel this way and also there's a scene where trip is talking to a guard while trip is trying to fix the array and he's like so why are you so racist you know yeah. why why are you why are you so xenophobic and have you ever actually talked to a vulcan and did they rub you the wrong way and the guy's like no i've never met one and he's like oh well i think if you actually like interacted with some people if you had exposure to beings that were different from you you might realize we're actually one and the same mm -hmm. and that you know just like what you were saying rihanna that's what's so wonderful about star trek and gene rest in peace mm -hmm. that was his goal is to create this idyllic version of the future where we all have tolerance and patience and love for each other and so it is so risky and hurts me to see this happening in star trek which is something that i love and have such a like pedestal for but it's absolutely realistic yeah and i think that deep space nine turned the tide i mean next generation and original series had some phenomenal episodes that really address a lot of issues in our world, our modern world. But I think that Deep Space Nine showed it more in the Federation, and then that extended to, not as much Voyager, because Voyager wasn't in the Alpha Quadrant, but that extended into Enterprise and Discovery and Picard, and even Lower Decks to an extent, to talk about the problems with the Federation. And we actually just recorded a Patreon episode about the animated series episode the magics of magus 2 and similarly talked about how this isn't showing humanity at its best and brightest it's showing humanity trying to be better you know and that archer is there at the forefront making sure that this weapon is not launched at san francisco and that people aren't going to be slaughtered and this cleansing is not going to happen and that we have people working against the xenophobic order the terra prime order and i think it's good to show both sides you know and so impressive that a mere few days after this event that they're still able to come together and i actually really liked archer's speech you know where he talks about the founding of the federation and what it stands for you know i mean i think that it does tie a nice bow around it which can sometimes be problematic because obviously that doesn't mean that racism or xenophobia is just gone <laughs> from the federation or from that time in earth but I think that because we know that original series is going to follow this, technically we know Discovery is going to follow this, and we know that original series will follow soon after all of this stuff, Strange New Worlds is going to follow it, that they do a good job at continuing to discuss the cracks in Starfleet and the Federation and in humanity, but also show the advances. You know, it's, it's a good line that, like we said, Gene's vision was trying to straddle of a beautiful future, but also filled with problems that can be overcome if we work together about how our actions are impacting other people and I think that there's a lot of thoughtful people on the Enterprise crew who do such things. It's so important that Trip 
learns from flocks that it's possible that he could have had a baby with T'Pol. It was about the cloning process that ended up killing her, not the fact that she was half Vulcan and half human. Tripp says that that's a bit of a comfort, you know, to know that love can win out and that it can work and that, you know, we see the product of love from Spock, that Sarek is the ambassador to Earth, you know, it really shows the progress made from both Vulcan and human standpoints. And so, I don't know, I think as much as this episode is super devastating and I'm always crying at the end, I think that it does allow for the fact that there will be a brighter future as long as we continue to work hard to abolish these horrible xenophobic views within ourselves and within others. Yeah, Paxton continue to say throughout the episode, what's going to happen in 200 years or a thousand years? Will there not even be a human race anymore? Will we be some like crazy crossbreed of things? And my answer to that is like, who cares? cares? (laughs) Like if we are more evolved and are not pure humans, but we're like a better version of ourselves, then who cares? Like what matters to me is that we are still respectful and loving and have open minds to others and that we're overall a friendly species to me if we're if we're not like bombing each other destroying our planets then i'm happy you know it it doesn't matter what we look like so to paxton i say f you a thousand times Mm -hmm. and i really learned from this episode that the real villain is not paxton the real villain is xenophobia so like rihanna said wake up eat your education breakfast and think about how you two can be less racist today (laughs) yeah google some things read authors who aren't white maybe don't ask your one black friend for help no please don't (laughs) google things (laughs) i'm sorry i just makes me mad anyway we all have work to do and let's get to it Okay, we're gonna we're gonna try to calm down because I'm very angry about How that. Are and this calm down when we're about to talk about the Zindi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well at least the Zindi are not as bad as Paxton. Ashlyn, they mm. killed seven million people. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. So Rihanna, talk about the Zindi. Who who are the aquatics? What's going on with the insectoids? Mm. Tell me. Tell me more. So the Zindi is a race uh, who was encouraged by these people called the Sphere Builders to destroy humanity, essentially. They wanted to destroy Earth because the Sphere Builders told them that humanity and Earth will be their downfall and that the Zindi will be destroyed if they do not destroy Earth. The Zindi really took this to heart. They said, oh dip, we gotta go destroy Earth. Let's build a planet-killing weapon. Let's build a Death Star. They built a mini one. And Mm -hmm. they used it as a test. And their test resulted in killing 7 million people. Cut through Florida all the way to Venezuela. There's different types of Zindi. There's the aquatics, the insectoids, the monkey guys. What are they called? Primates? (laughs) Primates. (laughs) And the humanoids. I guess the primates are also humanoids. Do you say aquatics? I love the aquatics. They're my favorite. The ones who are just like in the water and they're like, They're like, (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, exactly, it will be ready soon. (laughs) The insectoids are the worst of all of them because they went behind uh, the council's back at one point and went back in time to try I thought that was the reptilians. Bro, I forgot about the reptilians. Yeah, no, I think the reptilians are the worst 
Because they're snakes. <laughs> yeah, they're literal snakes. <laughs> Good one. Um, yeah, the reptilians went back in time then. And they yeah. were like, you know what? We're going to try to destroy humanity before they even know it. And we talked about that one in the time travel, so... Yeah. But anyway, this council is put together of all the different types of Zindi in order to be like, how do we destroy Earth? And so, like I said, they do this practice run where they kill 7 million people, including Tripp's sister, Elizabeth, which is tragic and horrible. And Tripp should not have been sent on a mission after that. He's definitely emotionally compromised. Anywho, (laughs) the Sphere Builders have manipulated the Zindi since day one. And it is only because of Daniel's that... Archer is able to be sent into the future and to learn the truth that, wait, him and Degra are actually good friends. And they actually, it turns out, the Zindi will not be destroyed if humanity is destroyed. The Sphere Builders just want to destroy humanity because, you know? They just don't like them. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, because I I think the Federation is a threat to their way of life. Mm. Oh, well, and the Sphere Builders are from a different dimension so yeah. they are, This is a good point. <laughs> yeah. So the sphere builders made the space more compatible for them by building these spheres. And so they have like a different atmosphere probably inside or whatever. As far as I know, we don't really get a ton from the sphere builders besides the fact that like they want to be in this space instead of their other dimension space. Yes. That is what I get from them too. I also, just a kind of general observation, taking it back a little bit. I think it's a very interesting idea that the writers introduce in Enterprise and with the characters of the Zindi because they're basically from a planet where every type of life form developed equally and with the same amount of brain power. So like on Earth, the examples are basically like, what if we had whales that were intelligent as us? And actually octopi are extremely intelligent they just can't like talk like us i don't think they have like senators but you know they're (laughs) but but they're very intelligent this is what happened on the zindi homeworld is all of their types of species just evolved at the same rate and so i think that's really cool and it also creates a really interesting power dynamic because I mean, as humans, like we just talked about, we have enough issues getting over race just because like our skin is different colors. Mm. And so I imagine it would be a really interesting and maybe difficult place to live if there was prejudice against the reptiles versus the insectoids versus the aquatics, you know? So it makes sense why there's a high council. So every species is fairly represented, but I feel like that just has a very complicated political system on the home world. Yeah, it makes me wonder how they evolved and like how much time it took for them to all be accustomed to each other and be on the same level. Partially, I think they, at least at first, all get along so well is because they have this united enemy of humanity. And they have the sphere builders telling them, hey, this is your enemy, do it. But then once Archer is able to get through to Degra and the other monkey guy, two of the council members, that's a big deal. And that starts to create the factions and the breaking up of the Zindi. And so I think that it's interesting because it does seem like a shaky foundation. The only real motivation of staying together is the fact of humanity is a threat. And so it can crumble easily. And we see that it does with Archer's influence. Yeah. In the episode Forgotten, we really see that 
Archer has Degger aboard and the one of the primates, and they're going around Enterprise basically showing them proof yeah. that everything that they're doing is wrong and they should not trust the Sphere Builders. And it's like three types of evidence. And Degra is pretty convinced afterwards, but the primate, I think he's also convinced, but he knows the reptilians and the rest of the council are not going to be on board with this. Mm -hmm. They need even more proof. We need to like talk to Daniels or something. It's interesting to see their different levels of suspicion. And then also at the end of the episode, basically the reptiles are firing on Enterprise and Degra has to make a choice in that moment. And he chooses to fire upon his own species and this is really hard for him but he has no choice because the reptilians they're gonna try to destroy enterprise unless degra knows exactly where to hit them which is what happens and i thought that was absolutely a turning point for the zindi and especially for degra like Rihanna said, Archer and Degra are going to have this long and flourishing relationship in the future, which we never see on screen, but mm -hmm. in terms of peacekeeping. And so I think he's a really important character, and he's another one who does go from enemies to friends throughout the seasons of Enterprise. Yeah, and he not only attacks the reptilian ship, he destroys it. Boom. And he said, well, they would have brought back the information of our treachery to the council and it would have been a disaster. So he makes that sacrifice and it's a big one. That's huge. So this is another instance where we see that the bigger issue here is the fight for the future and the Daniel struggle versus the sphere builders and all of this going on and that the Zindi are truly pawns. But at the beginning when we see them destroy a part of Earth, I'm fully convinced that they are the worst villains out there. And then by the end I'm I'm like, oh, they're just the Zindi. I mean they suck and like I hate them, but I don't hate Degra <laughs> and I would run away with them, so it's <laughs> not all that bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought the addition of the Zindi into Enterprise was really cool and interesting and another species that I feel like I wish had been more fleshed out and maybe, who knows, maybe in Lower Decks we're going to get some more Zindi interactions because they're part of the Federation going forward. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and they are discussed briefly in a couple series, like Discovery, but yeah, that's about it. Well, someone that unfortunately is not ever discussed again outside of Enterprise is Shran, which is a crime. <laughs> is a crime. <laughs> I think that this is Jeffrey Combs' greatest character. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, we've talked so much on the Dura Sisters podcast about how much we love Jeffrey Combs. We should probably change our name to the Jeffrey Combs podcast, I think, <laughs> <laughs> because he is amazing. And I think... Maybe Shran is my favorite Jeffrey Combs portrayal because we get to see him act so many different emotions as this angry and amazing Andorian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I wish we could watch every Shran episode like we wanted to just go through and watch every one, but obviously we didn't want to make this just a Shran podcast as much as yeah. as much as like that would be fun. So the episodes we're focusing on. I think are super important to his character development. So of course we start out with the Enterprise, or the Enterprise incident, <laughs> the Andorian incident, because this is his introduction. And he's a pretty bad dude in the beginning. He has held hostage a group of Vulcan monks in a monastery at a colony near Vulcan. And so his introduction makes him feel very malevolent and 
He's very snide. He's the leader. He is very distrustful of Vulcans. And I think we come from a place of bias with the Vulcans. And so this is a really fun and interesting episode because in my eyes, Vulcans can do no wrong. And this is where the problem stems. And what I enjoy so much about Enterprise is that it challenges my ideas about Vulcans. And I guess it's not true. A lot of Vulcans can do wrong, and I don't like how they treated Spock. <laughs> so I'll amend that a little. But I love Vulcan culture. They're my favorite species on Star Trek. I think that I hold them in a high regard. And when I see this random Andorian coming in, holding people hostage, talking bad things about the Vulcans, I'm immediately, like, my hackles are raised. And I'm like, why are you here? Like, you're destroying this monastery. Like, this is really just bad news. But it has multifacets, and we learned that the Vulcans were actually using the monastery as a listening post, spying on the Andorians. And so they are as much to blame for this incident as the Andorians are, because the Andorians' paranoia was correct. They were correct in assuming that the Vulcans had a listening post going on and had some sort of surveillance technology on them, because the Vulcans and Andorians have such a tumultuous relationship and they have for quite a few years and so this is a feud that's been going on for so long that it's hard for either side to shake their bias or their assumptions about each other especially when one kidnaps the other and then one has a listening post to the other you know i mean there's these setbacks in vulcan and dorian relations that make it difficult for them to get along well, what's the most disappointing about this is that, yes, they've had a hard and difficult history, but at this point, they're in an active treaty with one another. And there is a peace treaty between the Andorians and the Vulcans, and it's just to leave each other alone and to just let life happen and they're going to get along and it's going to be okay. This episode starts by making it seem like, because yes, exactly right, Rihanna, the writers are assuming that we're going to have a bias where we believe the Vulcans more than the Andorians because they're the species we've had so much more interaction with than the Andorians. And so it sets you up to think that the Andorians are sneaky and vicious and trying to just start war for no reason but it's completely unfounded and the vulcans in fact are the ones who are breaking the treaty even before shran and his ship do yeah it's a very interesting way to introduce the andorians and especially shran because his character is just going to really evolve throughout the seasons of enterprise this is the first time that we're really getting to experience andorians in their culture. We don't know a ton about Andorians. They're first introduced in the original series. They're pretty prevalent in Journey to Babel and other episodes, but for the most part, they're side characters. They're like, oh, there's an Andorian on the crew. That's neat. Whatever. Like, he's got blue skin. Cool. We don't get to really see a ton about their culture, and so I really enjoyed the fact that Enterprise went in so deep with Andorians because Andoria is a huge part of the Federation and it's interesting to see their origins with the bad relationship with the Vulcans. Like, I had no idea that Andoria was freezing and that they have this Imperial Guard, you know, and so it's cool to see their cultural structure and their military structure and all of that. So I just want to applaud the writers for flushing out a whole species that has been here since the beginning of Star Trek 
and making them such an important part and having Jeffrey Combs at the helm of this is so important too because he does such a good job of straddling the line between evil and good in a lot of his characters like we talked about with Yoon 6 how he's like the best Yoon ever <laughs> but Yoon as a whole is terrible and complicated and I think that Shran is as well he's terrible and complicated and one minute he's beating the crap out of Archer and trying to get information from him in the Andorian incident. And then in Proving Ground, he's an ally to Archer and his crew, but only so far as that he gets the Wazindi weapon himself to take back to Andoria to try to scare the Vulcans into submission. So he goes back and forth. He's really just fluidic in his morals and his motivations. And that's what makes him so fun to watch because you're not quite sure what he's gonna do next. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out, Rihanna. And I also just want to say that the Andorian incident sets up another theme that we're going to see throughout Archer and Shran's relationship. And that is that Archer accidentally gets involved into an incident that is the Andorians and a different species. And it's just because the Enterprise is the only Starfleet vessel that's flying around out here. And so they're the only advocate for humans. And mm -hmm. so if someone's in trouble, no matter whose distress signal it is, Archer's going to go after it. Absolutely. And in this case, in the Andorian incident, there wasn't even a distress signal. They just wanted to visit this Vulcan shrine. And it turned out that the Andorians were there trying to search for the listening post. It's a weird coincidence that that ended up happening. But what's really fair of Archer is at the end of the episode when they see that the Vulcans are totally betraying the treaty because T'Pol scans it and confirms that yes indeed this is a secret facility and Archer says give Shran the data because he did all the hard work of trying to find out they pieced together that there was no way that the Vulcans weren't breaking the treaty and so Shran gets this one and the Vulcans need to suffer the consequences of their actions and I thought that was a really smart move on Archer because he is extending an olive branch to Shran and the Andorians as a whole saying, you know, we're trying to be impartial here and this is the right thing to do. Shran says we're in your debt at the end of the episode. Absolutely. And he doesn't just say that to Archer, he says that to T'Pol as well. And I think that's huge because something that I appreciate about Shran and his character is that he's not like overtly xenophobic against the Vulcans. Like he's definitely says some rude things about Vulcan culture or about Vulcans in general, but for the most part, he maintains the belief that his enemies are the Vulcans who are doing him wrong. And so he's not terrible to to pull. A lot of his subordinates are, and I hate that about it. Like they really sexualize her or think that she's property and all of this horrible stuff. But Shran himself does seem to have a bit of respect for her, even if he's like, I don't really like you, but like, I also don't think that you're the worst just cause you're Vulcan. He's just like, I just don't like how emotionless you are or whatever. But I don't know. I mean, obviously he gets better and like he does grow to respect her more. And I just like to see that because it's not just this blanket, he hates all Vulcans type thing. It's this deeper conflict that's going on that he's at the forefront of because he's this big time commander. Yeah, yeah big absolutely. Time <laughs> big time commander. So it's interesting then, like you started talking about in Proving Ground, where they are allies for a hot second. And it's because they both are briefly united against the Zindi. Shran, throughout this episode, is really using ethos to persuade Archer to trust him because he keeps saying things like, 
when Earth was attacked by Zindi and millions died, where were the Vulcans? Where were all the other species who you have a so-called alliance with? Why haven't any of them helped you? And of course, Shran does not know the details of the nitty-gritty of how other species are trying to support Earth, but he's kind of right. There has not been a massive group effort from the Vulcans where they're now sending like thousands of shuttles to help repair Earth's damage. Like, no, nothing like that. And so Shran says, let us help you in the fight against the Zindi. Let's try to work together to get the telemetry on this weapon and let's try to stop them once and for all. And Archer, bless his little heart, he, I think, really likes Shran, and he really likes the friendship that they develop. And this is the first episode where Shran actually brings him a bottle of Andorian ale. And they've drunk together in previous episodes between these, but now Archer has like a case of this ale, which is really nice. So they're drinking buddies, and they get to a point where they get to discuss their deeper feelings about life together. So their relationship is really developing in this, but you shouldn't be surprised when Shran gets the telemetry of the sphere and he has to send it up the Imperial Guard to people higher up than him because that's his job. Mm -hmm. And what I saw that was so promising is that Shran knows we could easily have an ally and a friendship with the humans, but the higher up Andorians are not interested in that. That's not on their agenda right now. And so they're like, no, screw the humans. Don't let your feelings of the pink skins get in the way of your duty. And so I think that kind of shocks Shran back into reality a little bit, but it is really interesting to see that he is becoming so chummy with Archer in this episode. Absolutely. And not just with Archer, but with Trip. He has a moment where he opens up about his brother who died in the Imperial Guard because Tripp is talking about his sister who died at the attack. And so I think that it's beautiful that he's able to start making connections with his crew. And even Malcolm Reed is making connections with Shran's paramour. They're <laughs> not together yet. Oh, okay. But she paramour. she's the second in command, I think, of the Kamari, which is Shran's ship. Cool, okay. Yeah, and her name's Jamel. And yeah, right now they're not together, but they will be. And so Jamel has some cool discussions with Malcolm about family. I mean, she does still sabotage the ship while she's over there. But again, it's about higher up orders and about trans orders and all of that. And so I think you're so right. This is really showing trans sympathetic towards the Enterprise and especially towards Archer. The next time we meet him is in Babel 1 and United, a two-parter, which I love love that they mentioned Babel and that we get a Journey to Babel-esque episode with a great twist, you know, and that we get to see the interactions between the Tellarites and the Andorians and how fiercely opposing they are and how they're trying to create these treaties, but Tran's ship is attacked and it's destroyed. Yeah, so we thought that the Vulcans and Andorians had beef, but that is nothing compared to the beef between the Tellarites and the Andorians. And it seems like this is also a situation where it's been kind of building up for years, this hatred between the two species. And we learn, I mean, yeah, that's how the episode starts, is Shran is barely alive and his ship is destroyed. He makes a call for his remaining crew to go to escape pods. I mean, it's an extremely dire situation. Enterprise ends up picking them up while they're taking the Tellarites to the conference at Babel. 
And we learn from Shran that over the years, so many Andorian ships have been disappearing on different missions. And they assume it's the Tellarites because all of the data leads up to it being the Tellarites because suddenly the Tellarites have these better ships. And where could they have gotten those from? The Tellarites just hate the Andorians because they keep accusing them of taking the ships. And there's just a long history of infighting. This potential peace that's going to be happening at Babel is a really big deal, but it's totally messed up because Shran's ship was carrying the Andorian ambassador. So when the Tellarite ship attacked them and he killed the ambassador. So now the conference is ruined before it's even begun. This honestly, it made me want to watch Journey to Babel immediately after this to yeah. just feel more rich in all of this because I loved their commitment to making the Tellarites' faces look pretty similar to how it looks in the original series. Mm -hmm. And the original series had such a low budget and no money to make not hilarious yeah. costumes. Like they literally look like pig faces. Mm -hmm. And Shran calls them that, like, oh, you dirty pigs, like mm -hmm. throughout. I thought this was an episode where they really went in depth about the politics in this region of space. And I liked seeing that Archer had to do some training in order to start interacting with the Tellarites because we see this so much with Picard and this is just like a captain's duty where when you're gonna be a diplomat or you're gonna be ferrying ambassadors around the place, you have to treat them with respect and that means learning some rules and customs that are very foreign to you. So Archer has to be super rude and blunt to the Tellarites because that's how they interact with everybody. And I just, I really enjoyed seeing Archer so angry this whole episode because he's trying to just <laughs> interact with the Tellarites. I thought it was really funny. Yeah, he's like, wow, you've gotten uglier. <laughs> yeah, turns out though, the Tellarites are not responsible for this. The Romulans are. What? Wow. Wow, what, what? a twist. Um, yeah, I wow. was like, what? But if you think about it, like, huh, what species would want to disrupt the whole balance of power in the quadrant? Hmm, who could that be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, the Romulans are always here to wreck things. They're really good at subterfuge. They're good at pinning blame on others. They're sneaky AF. You know, there's a lot going on with the Romulans. I don't really super want to get into this Romulan plot because it's this whole other big thing. But essentially, the Romulans are here to create chaos in the region to ensure that the conference doesn't happen by destroying Shran's ship. So it's wild because the ship that the Romulans have, the bridge is controlled technologically like from their high command. They don't even From Romulus, yeah. yeah. It's like a VR machine essentially. Like they don't even have to get in the ship. They just have this one poor Andorian guy who's like in this headset being controlled. It was an Andorian? Yeah, it turns out. Dun dun dun. Oh man. The but, guy under all that the uh -huh. wires. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is a crazy plot twist, you know, that the Romulans are behind it and everything. But essentially a lot of things happened to Shran and I honestly feel so horrible for him because he had 82 crew members and only like 11 or 12 survived. No, 19. Oh, yeah. 19 survived. And his now wife, Jamel, she dies because a Tellarite weapon was set to kill and it like grazed her and so she couldn't recover from her injuries. And so Shran, <laughs> as per the custom of Andoria, he 
challenges the Tellarite leader to a battle yes. to the death. <laughs> the most classic Star Trek trope. And, I mean, it's a trope for many, many shows and many movies. But mm. I just am laughing because I'm like, is this the Amoktovar? Like, are we talking about the marriage ritual of fighting to the death on Vulcan? Like, are we talking about... There's so many fighting to the death rituals. It's really hilarious. I know. I was laughing at that, too. And the thing is, we didn't even mention this, but... I'm sorry. What's... I said Moktovar. It's the Konak Kalifi. That's my bad. Oh, I was thinking Moktovar is what... Yeah, it's Klingon when you're fighting for your lover and yeah. you're challenging them because you don't like her boyfriend or <laughs> you know and so you want to be the boyfriend. It's true. Um, it's another fight. It's not to the death. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be to the death, but it doesn't have to be. The escalation between the Andorians and Tellarites gets so violent that Shran sneaks into the Tellarites' quarters because he says, I'm going to do such a good interrogation of the Tellarites that they're going to reveal to me that they were the ones who attacked my ship and they're going to reveal why they did it. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't trust Archer to be a good interviewer, Mm -hmm. I guess. And so he does this with Jamel. It turns into violence, but Andorians have something in their physiology where they do not interact well at all with the chemicals that are in that type of phaser burn. And so she ends up dying and Phlox does everything he can, but it's hard when he doesn't know Andorian physiology as well. And so they're trying to get them to Andoria to save, because there's so many injured Andorian on the ship, but they don't make it there in time. And so Shran is even more angry and furious at the Tellarites. Like he's out for blood and vengeance now. Mm -hmm. I just have to stop and say that Jeffrey Combs is just fantastic. I was almost crying with him, watching him mourn the death of his wife because we get to see him do this full range of emotions. Oh my God, it's so realistic. And that's how I would feel too if I was in this situation. And so no wonder he challenges the Tellarite to a battle to death. But the thing is, it doesn't end up working out because the Tellarite uses Archer as a substitute. And it turns out Archer can kick some ass. <laughs> well, and Archer uh, also offers to be a substitute. And actually, it's a very smart political move because Archer knows that if he dies, the Federation will not pull out of the treaty with Andorians and the, 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 the sort of semi-stable relationship that Starfleet has with the Tellarites and the Andorians. And so it's such a delicate situation that either of them would definitely pull back the Tellarites or the Andorians if the Tellarite ambassador fought. And so this is essential that Archer steps up and does this quote-unquote fight to the death where he really only cuts off Shran's antenna. Yeah, he just humiliates him, which is the perfect way to end that battle. It's very Worf fighting a Klingon and not taking his life type of thing. And it's like, but kill me. And he's like, I will not. (laughs) And we'll bring more shame to your house, you know? So like that kind of vibe. Yeah, technically the rules of this fight is that you fight until the other one is unable to defend themselves anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's what Archer did. He basically took away Shran's ability to defend himself. I think also cutting off the antenna is is more ego bruising than actually painful because they do grow back in nine months or as Flock says, in half the time with proper treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God Archer took this fight in his place and is able to keep this sort of tentative relationship going. I mean, it's still pretty, like I said, tentative between the Tellarites and the Andorians, but it's not broken completely as we see in Terra Prime where they're all joining the Federation. 
Yeah, and I also just want to notice that much like Degra had to do when he was beginning to turn against his own species, in this episode, we see that Shran is starting to turn. He already has kind of a issue with the higher-ups on Andoria because he really thinks it's a good idea to become allies with the humans. And so in this episode, this drone ship, which, you know, we still, we don't know who it really belongs to, but because it has this really cool thing that it can camouflage and look like any ship that the Romulans want it to be. And so they turn it into an Andorian ship with the same warp signature and everything. And then it starts attacking Enterprise. And so Shran is put in the same situation that Degra is, where he then has to fire upon what he thinks is a ship full of Andorians, which is such a betrayal to everything that he believes in. And so I just am once again applauding Enterprise in showing that all of these villains have so many different tears. <laughs> I mean, crying oh. tears and just like so many different levels of existence. Yeah. And it's cool to see Shran finally take that step into saying, well, you know what? I have to defend myself. And clearly there's something wrong here if I am firing upon my own ship and we we have to make it right. Absolutely. Of course, it's the Romulans. So what I also admire about Archer, because he's spending his whole time trying to act a certain way for the Tellarites, he's trying to act a certain way for Shran. And so in the end of this episode, he's like, maybe you both should try acting like humans, because when we are faced with a problem that is bigger than us, we forget about our differences and we come together to fight the thing that is a problem. And for me, you know, thinking about COVID, I wish this was true. I wish right now as humans, we would all come together and fight COVID, but Ooh. clearly we're not doing that. So I think this is like a future human thing that Archer's talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I did like that quote where he says, when we're faced with something and it's a really big deal, we put our differences aside and we help each other. And so he is actually able to do that. And at the end of this whole situation, when they find out that it's, it's the Romulans, the Tellarites and the Andorians are able to communicate. And I was very happy to see Archer says, why should we wait for Babel? Let's start these peace negotiations right here, right now on Enterprise. Absolutely. And even T'Pol points out that these four species have never cooperated on an endeavor before. And I assume she means Vulcan, humans, Andorians, mm -hmm. and Tellarites. And so that is such a huge, huge step in the right direction. And yeah, what paves the way for the foundation of the Federation. Yeah. Foundation of the Federation. Woo! <laughs> yeah. So, wow. This was just a lovely ride. And I had some angry moments, but, yeah. you know, we still had some laughs. And yeah. I'm excited that Discovery Villains are next. And I just want to say, once again, we got some crazy times coming in both of our lives. My house is still not closed because there's some repairs going on. So I'm like still kind of hotel hopping right now. So making the podcast is difficult, but we are doing our best because we love it. This is what we love in our life is the yes. podcast. So thank you for listening. And we will be taking this week off. So don't expect that discovery episode until about two weeks from now. Mm -hmm. But don't worry, you will have it and you will love it yes and we'll be posting on social media in the meantime so keep up with that and thank you all so much for listening and i can't wait for discovery in two weeks yes and don't forget to check out our patreon because we have reviews of the animated series dropping so go check that out and go watch lower decks Woo -woo. lower decks is out Woo! thank you for listening to the dura sisters podcast 
Please tune in in two weeks for the sixth episode of our villain series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the most villainous people in Star Trek Discovery. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. So far, we have covered these podcast series, pilot episodes, family, love and affection, and time travel. If you haven't heard a particular series, please go back and listen to any of these episodes. Social media and marketing was done by me, Ashlyn Gelman, and Rihanna Hurd. Editing is done by Rihanna Hurd and Ashlyn Gelman. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worse Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire isolated themselves from society for one reason or another and they again? yeah i said reason <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. i just thought about editing it out and i was like oh. <laughs>